Hi, this is Adam. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded several months ago. There's been a bit of a backlog getting this stuff out the door. And there are a few references on this episode to the pandemic, uh, the circumstances of which have since changed a little bit about quarantine and lockdown. So wanted to clarify that up top and uh, please enjoy. I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. Welcome back. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing okay. Um, yeah, definitely have some some stuff to catch you up on since our last conversation. Good. Well, let me... First, do a little recap for myself and for the listeners, anyone tuning in for the first time. This is not therapy where Adam's job is to be neurotic and funny, and my job is to be slightly less neurotic, <laughs> slightly less, less neurotic, slightly less funny, and, uh, slightly and less also facile with the English language, evidently. <laughs> less funny. Less facile with the English language, but a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. <laughs> so I've got that. I've got that one in my back pocket. You, yeah, you definitely, you definitely win in terms of advanced degrees, in terms of <laughs> quote unquote expertise. Although Adam did almost become a psychologist, he thought about it seriously. This is true. <laughs> I, I applied and was accepted to PhD clinical psych programs many years ago. So and, let's just uh, let's just give it to you. Let's just. <laughs> Let's just put the degree on there. The, the actual going to the school is perfunctory. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> what do they really teach you there? Um, so last time we finally got to Clara. This What is that passive aggressive finally? <laughs> oh, finally, after session hey. after session of having to recount the minutia of your romantic and sexual history for decades. I'm in no rush. I'm in no rush. As you know, you talk about whatever getting, you want, the, the not paychecks keep rolling in for me. So right. I'm here, man. But for our listeners, they may have rejoiced when we got to Optimistically, Clara. we assume it's plural. It's plural. <laughs> for our listener. For our listener out there. Hi, mom. <laughs> My mom listened to a, the latest episode last night. She loved it. I got very positive feedback from her, which I was a little nervous about because we got into some uh, some content that I wasn't sure how it was going to land on her ears. But that woman, a, t a team of wild horses couldn't keep her away from listening to every new episode when it comes out. So God bless her. <laughs> So we got to this relationship that has been a huge part of your life recently. You came out here to California from New York with the plans of quarantining with this woman who you met fairly recently, but who's made a big impact, who you've really fallen for, and who sounds like who has fallen for you. And you came out and uh, made the breakthrough discovery that it turns out beginning a new relationship in the context of a quarantine in the middle of a global pandemic is challenging <laughs> introduces introduces some stressors 
into the mix. <laughs> yeah. See, if I'd gotten my PhD in clinical psych, I could be publishing this sort of groundbreaking research. <laughs> These are the insights that our listeners keep coming back over and over for. Oh my God. The breakthroughs. The pandemic it's, is stressful. The pandemic is stressful. It's hard to build a brand new relationship in the context of social isolation. Huh. Uh, but we we traced some of the particulars of the dynamics that went on between the two of you when you went through that first period of quarantine together. And it was all very interesting, at least to us. And we learned a great deal about how your mind works in relationship. And we started to talk about attachment theory a little bit. And we set the stage for a conversation that you are about to jump into with Clara, where the two of you were going to decide whether or not she was going to come back up to the Bay Area to re-enter the dojo with you to, to go in for another round of quarantine time with Adam. And I am excited to hear about that conversation. I think that should have been the title of this podcast, Quarantine Time with Adam. Re-enter the dojo. <laughs> So the conversation was difficult and painful at times to set the stage just a little bit more. So I had, she had left weeks ago and was kind of like, you know, from her perspective, she wanted things to continue at some point in the future. But from my perspective, there was some hesitation based on some of the things that had happened at that visit. And then I'd reached a place where I felt like actually what, what she did, which was choosing to leave early and also choosing at a particularly emotionally fraught and for me vulnerable time during her last visit to meet up with another guy who she has a relationship with, meet up non-sexually in this case, given the quarantine and the fact that they were, they were presumably staying some some distance from each other, but that was also very painful. So that had given me pause, then I'd processed that and gotten to a point where I really kind of understood all of that. But as you and I spoke, I became aware of still some trepidation. And part of that, as we discussed, isn't any mystery. It's previously in our relationship with my relationship with Clara, there had been no pain or anxiety whatsoever. It had been a very easy relationship, which isn't necessarily saying that much. We've known each other for, at this point, it's been about three months. And our past interactions were when she was visiting New York and we were there, our, our focus was on each other and there wasn't a global pandemic going on. So part of it was, oh, this last time was actually painful and maybe I'm a little bit gun shy because stretching further back, one of the things that's emerged from our past sessions slash episodes has been this longstanding pattern of my inability or unwillingness to open my heart to women in the aftermath of a really deep heartbreak that happened 17 years ago. And after that heartbreak, that's when I first developed OCD. I certainly had precursors of OCD, anxiety, perfectionism, obsessiveness, but I didn't have obsessive rituals and behaviors, compulsive rituals and behaviors prior to that heartbreak. So yeah, I was confronting this question. Am I, am I really willing to open my heart to this woman? And what we came down to last session was, yes, I want to, but there are 
there are still some things that happened last visit that don't sit right. So that was this conversation Clara and I had now a couple of days ago, immediately after you and I recorded the last episode. And it was painful. And I think part of it was, so the way I approached it was kind of, I was laying out what my concerns were and saying, what do you have to say to this? And the reason I structured it that way is I have such a tendency to come up to come up with narratives in my own head of, oh, this must be what's going on. This is probably what she was feeling. Not even a probably. I mean, that was one of the things that's emerged from our past discussions is how quickly I jumped to conclusions. And a theme of those conclusions was that during her last visit was that her being somewhat distant and not nearly as affectionate and euphoric towards me as she had been before reflected some change in her feelings towards me. That was my interpretation, my sort of blanket interpretation. Basically, I took everything personally, whereas someone else might have said, well, there's a global pandemic happening. That's a pretty big difference from the last times you've hung out. Hung out. Maybe that's a. Maybe that's the nah. real decisive factor. But that really didn't. I mean, I was aware there was a pandemic, but that really didn't occur to me. To me, it was clear that okay, she obviously feels different about me. I don't know exactly why, but it probably reflects the fact that I'm a little bit anxious because of this pandemic. And yeah, it was all about you. Yeah. So to avoid this sort of. Uh, in this conversation, I wanted to approach it differently rather than laying out the narrative that my brain had come up with and then seeing what she said. I wanted to let let her start with the ball in her court. She could kind of explain her view of events. But I realized as we were doing this, effectively, that gave it the tone of kind of, hey, you better justify yourself. Mm-hmm. I want you to explain what you did. I don't think that was the the ideal way to approach that conversation. And it was a couple of hours on the phone, video chat, rectangle as we call them, seeing each other in our little rectangular devices. And it felt, I I could see she was, it was painful for her at times. And I really do have this sort of visceral thing where I don't want to see her in any pain. It felt like I was at times dredging up the past in a way that felt maybe not productive, not quite vindictive, but it was, as I was doing it, I was like, what am I really hoping for here? And I really don't think I was trying to subtly beat up on her. I really just wanted to get comfortable with this stuff, but that was the way it started feeling. Yeah. It sounds like it wound up coming out a little bit like a deposition. Yeah. And the good thing is we didn't really shy away from everything. I really did get everything out there. And ultimately, it felt like we reached a place of resolution. There were some things like this thing about how when she decided to leave, she didn't even ask me, hey, what are you going to do now, given that you came out here mm-hmm. to quarantine with me? Are you going to stay out here? Are you going to go back to the East Coast? And that that hurt that she didn't ask. And that was an example of something that I brought up, and she really didn't have a good answer for that. You know, and I appreciated the fact that she she wasn't trying to manufacture answers. There were were other things that arose that I brought up in that conversation where she could say, "Oh yeah, this was my thinking." But when that one came up, she said honestly, she paused for a bit and she said, "I don't really have a justification for that." Mm-hmm. And, and I realized it was okay. 
it was okay. Initially, it was kind of made me feel a little bit insecure, but as I thought about it more, it was sort of, see, what's tricky is this unpacking of the past, I feel like, especially there's one thing when you're asking someone about specific actions they took. Why did you choose to see this person? Why did you choose to leave? But we're mostly beyond that. I'm at peace with her actions. I feel like her leaving early was, as I said last episode, as painful as it was at the time, was ultimately the best thing for her. And I think we all have a responsibility to do what's best for us as long as we're not excessively hurting other people, but also probably the best thing for her and for the relationship at that point in time. Mm -hmm. But interrogating her as to why didn't you express more concern about what I do next? That's a little bit different. Asking about, yeah. So how did you phrase that to her? If, if you can remember. I just said, it feels to me in terms of how did I phrase the, why didn't you ask more about what I was doing? What I was going to be doing when you left? Yeah, however you whatever you said about her leaving without checking in with you or how that was hurtful for you and it sounds like you brought it up and she didn't really have much of a response. I'm curious what the actual words you might have said were. I said, um, you know, this was the last thing I think I brought up of my concerns. I said, you know, one other thing is when you left, it felt like you really were not at all concerned about what I was going to do. I don't think you even asked, where are you going to go? Are you going to stay here? You just didn't really seem to express any, uh, any concern about that. Mm -hmm. And the way I wish I had phrased it now and the way I wish I had approached a lot of this conversation would have been instead to say, just state how I felt rather Mm -hmm. something to the effect of one other thing that made me feel a little insecure, not a little, why, why, why soft pellet that, that, that provoked some feelings of anxiety or insecurity or made me feel like maybe you, you weren't as caring or sensitive as I would have liked you to have been in that time is you didn't really, yeah, you see, as I'm saying it, it doesn't really come across that differently, but the idea of stating more, this is what I would have liked in that situation less with the aim of you explaining why you didn't give that to me rather with the goal being when a situation like this arises again, hopefully we'll never be in this exact same global pandemic fleeing from quarantine with me situation. But when a situation arises again, where it might offer the potential for a similar repertoire of responses, you can take into account the fact that, hey, maybe kind of bring it more, more about me and even taking some ownership of maybe other people in that situation wouldn't have needed that. But I, maybe I need a little bit more reassurance and expressions of concern than Mm -hmm. other people do. I don't know, but I do know that this is what would have been helpful for me. Yeah. Two things to respond to there. From the more depth psychology, psychoanalytic, psychotherapy frame, an interesting question for us to take up is exactly that last thing you just said. 
do you have a need for more reassurance than other people? Is that something we want to dive deeper into? Questions like that. From a to- through a totally different lens, though, I find a lot of value in how you're questioning the mechanics of the communication there. And we started to get into this in the last episode, sort of the mechanics of nonviolent communication, which is the title of a book and a style of communication that has spawned, you know, workshops, et cetera, the world over. Um, First developed by a psychologist now deceased named Marshall Rosenberg. And I just find it to be so brilliant and helpful in this, this type of communication that you are describing with Claire. And I think we can dissect we can use it to dissect that exchange a little bit and, and think about how you might have communicated what you were hoping to communicate. I think you're, you're circling right around it and how you're thinking about it right now. Yeah. And I want to get more into that. I did. I know that was my homework assignment. I did download <laughs> the free Kindle sample, which is how I buy books. I download the sample. And then if I'm sufficiently grabbed, I purchase the book, but I imagine I will purchase it since it's my <laughs> not therapy assignment. Highly recommended. Recommend the audio book too, because Marshall reads it himself and he's got a very funny voice. <laughs> Though I prefer if the only thing all of our listeners or listener R slash is listening to is not therapy. Really, we don't. Right. We want, we want exclusive. We want. We want. We want monogamy with eardrums. Whether or not that's present in our own sexual relationships. Yes. Anyone who's listening to this right now who has not already liked every one of Adam's Instagram posts and subscribed to the podcast on every different possible podcast listening <laughs> platform they have is. You're basically doing to Adam um, what his mother did to him, and you should be stickened with your behavior. And if my mother is listening to this, (laughs) (laughs) that was a joke. Um, If my mother is listening to this, I think we need to clarify. This is we have to talk about this at some point, which is yeah, where we're going to go with this stuff in terms of talking about my mother. But let's address that later. Yeah. Yeah, the train still has point. not the train still has not pulled into mom town for either of us. Um and we got to get there at some point because we're building it up as though we're going to make have this big reveal about the monsters that our mothers are <laughs> and how they shaped us into the the, the twisted <laughs> the twisted sad human beings that we are but both of our mothers are I don't actually know much about your mother but I think I speak for both of us when I say our mothers are wonderful loving human beings who did the very best they could with us which was very good um so yes. good in fact <laughs> so good in fact that it gave us the <laughs> depth of the depth of uh confidence in our self-acceptance self-acceptance to then start a podcast where we badmouth them (laughs) right that's the ultimate (laughs) testament to their their parenting prowess (laughs) that we can be doing this yeah but yeah let's dig into let's dig into nvc nonviolent communication for a sec and just stay with this exchange yes and then there's been a subsequent exchange so um so we'll see but yeah so 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 yeah um so just the basics of nonviolent communication can be summed up in a, a four-part acronym. Observations, feelings, needs, and requests. O-F-N-R. I don't know how we can make something catchy out of that. 
So an observation is a is an observation of something that happened or that another person did that is removed, stripped of value judgments. So something that can't really be argued with. Like, Clara, you left without checking in with me about how I was going to be feeling or what I was going to be doing. That's just a that's just a restatement of facts. Maybe there's disagreement there, which you can get into, but it's not the same as saying you left and you were totally inconsiderate about me because that is a value judgment on what was your mind reading about what was going on for her. Was she being considerate or not? That's a very value laden statement. Just saying you left and I did not experience you as checking in with me about how I was going to be doing. That's much more of an observation. Feeling is how it how it left you feeling how you felt in response to that very important to separate that from how it made you feel because something that another person does does not make you feel anyway you have a feeling in response to something that another person does but saying you made me feel angry when you left is uh abdicating your own personal responsibility for how for how you feel and that's a whole thing that is that's such a such a complicated concept and we can i'm sure we'll come back to that and dive into it at some point need what need of yours was not being met in the in that moment when you were having that feeling so you had an it's it sounds to me i'm putting words in your mouth it sounds to me that you had a need to feel emotionally cared for by her in that moment and the request then is a request for what she could either do now. So, you know, the request could be, it would really make me feel good, feel cared for if you offered me an apology or, or something. Or the request might be, I think, more to what you were getting at. The request might be how it could go differently next time how she could meet your needs and it's it's a request not a demand it's an opportunity for someone else to give you a gift which is a really uh, is a really important point of all this because people love giving each other gifts people do not like meeting each other's demands Hmm. but it's this great way that nvc flips demands on their head and it's just like hey i have this need Boy, do I have a special opportunity for you. You get to give me a present (laughs) if you want to by meeting that need. And who doesn't like giving presents? So that's kind of a a, my rough sketch of of NVC, not being a total expert in the matter, but again, a a very powerful book. That that is helpful. And to be fair, I think to the extent that I some of the Conclusions I had post conversation with Clara, even though I haven't read the book, I think you've dropped in a few hints of this in past sessions. So I think that's probably, I think you prime me to be looking at it a little bit more this way in terms of stating my needs. Mm-hmm. And so, unfortunately, I did not approach the conversation that way. But the ultimate endpoint of that conversation, it's, hard. it's very hard. It's hard. And I, 
and again, I do think I genuinely was coming from a good place where my thinking being like, hey, rather than me dropping my narrative on her, let me see what her narrative is. But the reality yeah. was she didn't really have much of a narrative around this stuff. She kind of did what she did, was acting in the context of a lot of fear and uncertainty. And yeah, it just, I think it just gets so tricky where where we're talking about things like, oh, you could have expressed more concern. It's hard for me to put my finger on it, but it feels like maybe it's this. I've spent a fair amount of time with this person, albeit in these you know short, concentrated visits, and my general sense of her, this sort of felt sense of this woman is not that she's someone at all who uh, is not compassionate, is not considerate, is not caring. So maybe it felt a little bit like this. My mind was kind of extracting these specific things and looking for some sort of satisfaction from her on a intellectual level. But the reality is it doesn't feel like a deep-seated doubt. But also, mm -hmm. on the other hand, I don't know her that well, and it's not an unreasonable concern. But also, also on the other hand, I feel like maybe I want, and this is one of the things that emerged, maybe I'm looking for a degree of reassurance or certainty that one simply doesn't get in these sort of, in, in, in I was going to say these sort of relationships, but any relationship, any interpersonal relationship, even when there's not sex involved, there's an element of uncertainty there. Mm -hmm. You don't know what the other person is always thinking and feeling, and their behavior can give clues to that, but sometimes you may just have to sit with the fact that, all right, it would have been nice if this person had been a little bit more expressive of concern at that moment. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. No, yeah. On the one hand, what I hear you saying is that on the one hand, there is a recognition of the inherent limitations in being connected with another person and they are not going to be able to read your mind and give you exactly what you want and there's a disappointment inherent in that but we can also do better and try and communicate our needs and try to get to know what is going on for other people in in mature ways yes and I think what I'm circling around here and I'm having trouble pinning it down is this idea that understanding why she left early, again, we were going to be quarantining together indefinitely and she left after five days. Understanding that I think was valid and important, but I already did understand that by the time of this most recent conversation, trying to understand why she didn't inquire more as to what my next moves would be. It feels like that was maybe looking for more reassurance than I could reasonably help, hope for and maybe is even reasonably healthy for me to look for. Mm -hmm. It just, in the moment in the conversation, it just, I had this awareness of like, yeah, it felt like I was kind of drilling in a little bit. And yeah, were you like not therapizing her a little bit? Yeah, I I was or I was not not therapizing her. I was I was not <laughs> meaning if I, I mean not therapizing as the 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 brand name not therapy. <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> <laughs>
Were you not therapizing her? By which I mean the thing we're doing here. Were you quasi therapizing her? And then no. trying to drill in. Not for her benefit, but were you drilling in in a way that was... <laughs> I'm so... Do you feel like you're not drilling in here for my benefit? Um, I'm drilling in here for the advertising revenue. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Amazon. <laughs> we are willing Jeff. to overlook any... <laughs> Jeff, if you are listening... ...realistic failings... <laughs> If you are listening, Adam is still not booking any live stand-up shows, and boy, could we use... Boy, could I don't need to ride on your product. jets, Jeff. I just need just a 5% coupon off uh, off wet wipes. That, that That's all I need to... <laughs> the, um, I certainly am drilling in here for your benefit. Right, that's were my perception. You, yeah, were you drilling in... It was not for her More benefit. properly. It was for, for your benefit. But absolutely. I was looking to get, and I was transparent about this. I was saying these are things that still don't sit quite right, and I want to understand more so that I can feel comfortable. And I said specifically, I had really been opening my heart to this woman in a way I've rarely done for many years. And we talked about this last session. I'm using the word session instead of episodes. We talked about this last session where there had been some struggle to open my heart to her, but it had been an internal struggle with my own OCD, my OCD saying, oh, this isn't quite right about her. This isn't ideal about the relationship. I don't know if you should, you know, like, do you, is this really who you want? And what I've been able to do to a degree I hadn't been able to do in in past relationships in recent years was to sit with that, to actually pray around it because I see my own powerlessness against the OCD powerless, not meaning that I have to give into it, but powerless meaning I can't choose to not have those thoughts, those OCD thoughts. And I was able to make a conscious choice to open my heart to her, even with my OCD throwing out these doubts. And that had been a successful strategy for me. I was able to open my heart to her. Yeah. So I had said to her in this call, you know, I, I was, I was, I really was opening my heart to you and I want to get to a place where I feel safe continuing to do that, yeah. which also maybe wasn't the most helpful frame. And that will emerge as I talk about some other stuff that came up in a subsequent mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah, just to finish that part, did you have something more to say about? No, no, go, go, uh, no. To sort of finish up on, at the end of this first conversation, where this part where you're asking her to help you understand why she left without checking in about your feelings. So that I can feel safe opening my heart was kind of how so I framed it. So that you it. can feel safe opening your heart. Yeah. It was for my benefit. It was for your benefit, I wanted, which I, I certainly don't want to give you the impression that I think there was anything wrong with you asking that for your benefit, because you're, of course, that's why you're having this conversation with her. But what I'm wondering is, was trying to really get a fine-grained understanding of her thought process a little bit of an obsessive control mechanism where the more vulnerable thing may have been to 
just let her know how hurt you felt in that moment and to share with her that I think you basically did do that actually as I'm saying this I think you wanted to let her know that you were hurt and that it would be reassuring for you if she was able to share with you something around her thought process there and let you know that she would try to do it differently in the future there's just there's something about the you framing it more from the position of trying to understand her thinking that feels a little feels a little um, brain heavy rather than heart heavy um, heart i think centered. you're you're right and as you're saying that i think there is an ocd component there i don't think it's control in the sense of i'm shying away from the more vulnerable thing what i do think though is it's control in the sense of well reassurance seeking basically this is such a fundamental thing for me i mean it's even informed my professional choices i i've talked about this on stage where i feel like stand-up is kind of a form of ocd because the 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 common denominator of ocd one of them is reassurance seeking and In normal conversation, you often, as we were just saying, you don't quite know in interpersonal interactions how things are going. Is this person really understanding me? Are they enjoying themselves? But with comedy, I know exactly how it's going because the audience is giving me a performance review every 20 seconds in the form of laughing or not laughing. And you do it long enough, they're mostly laughing, and it's very, very reassuring. So I something that, and this has even come up with this podcast as I've, painfully listen to some of the past episodes and I've seen, it seems like sometimes I'll, I'll over explain things. I'll, yeah. I'll say the same thing in multiple ways. And I think that's all of a piece with this wanting, wanting certainty. Basically I want to be certain yeah. people understand clearly what I mean. And I wanted to be certain in that moment that I felt that I understood where Clara was at, where she had been at, when yeah. she had not given me that reassurance. And there, there, there's reassurance again. What was I looking for at that time when she left? I was looking for reassurance, which I don't think is necessarily bad. But trying to get that reassurance now, yeah, I, I think that's maybe that's the distinction I've been kind of in a convoluted way trying to make between, yes, it was essential for me to understand why she chose to left, leave early. Mm-hmm. But but then once you get into trying to understand why didn't you ask me what I was going to be doing next, that feels like it's it's not a hard line. There's a gray area, but it feels to me like the latter is more in the unhealthy reassurance-seeking camp for me. I hear that. I hear that. I'm not having such a reaction to the reassurance-seeking part in this moment as I am to the part about you trying to understand her thought process so that but i i see that is reassurance seeking for myself i want to be reassured yeah that this but I is don't, why I, she sorry, but i don't on. think you want to be reassured by her i don't think you want to be reassured by her i think you want to reassure yourself and that's because re, reassurance seeking from her is a that is happening in relationship 
reassuring yourself by understanding her thought process so that you can know what was going on for her so that you can understand her, figure her out, and therefore be able to predict next time what's going to happen. That's reassuring yourself. And that's all in your head. And that's what feels more obsessive to me. I don't think that's what I was doing. I At okay. least consciously, there wasn't a sense of, well, if I can understand why she did what she did last time, then I'll have more insight into her and then I'll be able to better control or even manipulate. My only thinking was, ooh, this thing that happened last time left me feeling not very good, the fact that she didn't inquire as to what I was going to do after she left. Yeah. Maybe if she can explain a little bit more about that, I'll feel better about it because yeah. I'll understand that there is a different way of looking at it that I didn't look at it because we have had that experience before with with past conversations about totally. her leaving. Yeah, yeah. But that to me seems like maybe a little bit OCDE too. OCDing, OCD dash Y e. as an adjective. OCD, <laughs> OCD-esque, OCD. OCD-ish. In the neighborhood of OCD. OCD-ish, there we go. Um, which part? Say that again. Looking for this reassurance about something, looking for re looking for her to explain why she didn't ask me what I was going to be doing next seems a bit OCD-ish for me, to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that... And that's what I mean. It's a, a difference of degree because asking her to explain why she decided to leave early feels like not OCD-ish. But they're fundamentally, they're the same thing. They're trying to understand why someone did what they did so that I can feel more comfortable. Yeah. But so maybe where the OCD, where something crosses the line from not OCD to OCD is when it's like you're asking for for understanding of smaller, more subtle things. Like, I mean, where does it end? It could be like, well, you didn't, uh, you know, when you, when you, when you walked into that restaurant, usually you smile, you didn't smile. I mean, you could ask. <laughs> and so, right. So we'd agree that example paralysis. is excessive. Yeah. And so it is somewhat of a, a, an arbitrary, not arbitrary, but there's a judgment as to, okay, this is healthy and necessary to understand these sorts of actions. But once you, once these actions get small or inconsequential, looking for understanding is OCD land. Yeah. I agree. It's a matter of degree. But I think there's still there's another way to convey to her information about something that didn't feel good without it having to take on this obsessive need to understand quality without you taking out your like lawyer's memo pad and mm -hmm. and getting into the nuts and bolts of oh but then you took a long a, a three second in breath and I that however phone records location <laughs> records show that <laughs> you were actually in Cincinnati at the same time the murder took place <laughs> you missed your calling obviously but yeah so I think there's still a way to not um, to not silence yourself in that scenario I'm not saying that's what it would amount well, to but yes there's a there's a vulnerable because the obsessions are a way to avoid being vulnerable the obsessive communication the obsessive need to understand exactly why something happened the way it did there's a way to just to still say your piece 
and be vulnerable and not not cling to the need to understand exactly what happened but just to let her know that something didn't feel right for you and that it would be nice for you to understand more about it but that you don't need to that you're okay if uh, if no explanation is forthcoming yeah and maybe this comes back to the nonviolent communication acronym where just expressing my my wants my needs and my requests rather than this quest for understanding yeah rather than but where were you at 759 on april the second yeah so so that conversation but you did say something a moment ago where i don't remember the phrasing you used but something like yeah i'm not gonna remember i this connects to something you said i did feel good that I was able to voice, I did, right, you said, I don't want to feel like I'm silencing myself, and I didn't feel that way. There were things that felt like, oh, do I really want to go and go here? But then I'd think, well, no, I do have some discomfort about this, so let me go here. So it did feel like we got everything out in the open. And, but it felt, yeah, it felt difficult. And I'm also aware, so, she tends towards depression. We talked about she has the maybe the less severe form of bipolar, but depression more than more than any sort of mania or hypomania. It seems like maybe more just cyclical depression. She gets depressed. Part of this relates to her having premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Perhaps part of her depression, as it often is with depressed people, is this real vicious self-flagellation. Mm-hmm. And so I was leery. I didn't want her to, I didn't want her to give up. I didn't want to give her ammo to feel shitty about herself. I feel like she has a tendency to maybe do that anyway, at least in some phases of her moods. Mm -hmm. So, and the, the phone call did end on a positive note where it was like, okay, yeah, I'm excited to see you. I'm going to see you in a few days. Great. And the next day, I was thinking about it and I felt good about it. I felt like, okay, yeah, we really got everything out there and we worked through everything. And again, the thing that I felt the best about is I, there were times when I was aware of wanting to silence myself, to not express a concern because it felt vulnerable or it felt like, well, what if she can't address this concern or what if me even expressing it upsets her in some way? Because there is this fear of loss that's entered in now, which I don't think has a lot to do with her, but I think... Yeah, is a runs very deep in me. And and that's a lot of what got triggered during this quarantine visit when she was we talked about this. Unfortunately, I think me smoking marijuana on that visit was maybe a little bit decisive where it really kicked in this fear of, oh man, you may be pushing this woman away. And then the next day she announced that she was going to be leaving early. So even on this phone call with her, there was a little part of me that was like, oh, you better not be too you better be a little careful to not upset her, which is absolutely not the way I want to approach this. Let me be clear. I don't want to upset her unnecessarily, but I also don't want to feel like I have to censor myself. And to this real like giving away my power to her in a way and really putting myself in this like needy subservient position, which 
doesn't feel like it reflects the reality of our relationship, but it's just this, this, this fear that comes up. I really feel like I'm all over the place with this whole, whole thing, but maybe we don't release this <laughs> one, but I'll just keep talking. Um, cause that's what the people demand. Um, yeah, no, this so is, this is making a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, so the next I day I said to you, I think it, it's, it's quite likely that when you feel like you're not making sense and you don't know what you're saying is actually when we're getting into things that are more raw and useful. Yeah. It's a possibility. So, so it felt, so we got off that call feeling like a little drained feeling. It felt like it was work. Mm-hmm. Probably the first call we've ever had that really felt like it was work. Cause we've touched upon, we've had a few of these rectangles since she left, which was now, um, what, um, yeah, over four weeks ago, I think if I'm doing the math, right. We've had a few of these calls, but they've mostly just been a lot of joy in seeing each other uh-huh. and a little bit of touching on what happened in the past. But I had been like, hey, I want more time to process before we do a full debrief. And yeah. so I guess this one felt like, yeah, the more it felt like it wasn't really necessary. It wasn't ultimately that helpful because I was going to make the decision to see her or not see her. And I, and it was always going to be somewhat of a gamble or there's going to be uncertainty around it. There's going to be vulnerability if she comes back. But I did feel pretty good the next day that I didn't silence myself. I voiced all of my concerns. We worked through them. And so I sent her a text the next day to that effect that I felt really good about things. You know, it hadn't been easy, but we'd done the work and I was excited to bring this same commitment to honesty and to being vulnerable with each other when we saw each other in person. And I can't wait to see her. And as we've discussed previously, she is, her texts are uniformly very long and very effusive and poetic. They're like love letters. They're they're incredibly well-written and yeah, deep. They're, 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 they're little works of art and specifically in the way that she expresses herself and her emotions so clearly and so unreservedly. And so I was a bit taken aback when I sent this text to her to get just a very short text back, just saying like, you know, I'm, I feel the same way and looking forward to seeing you heart. Mm-hmm. I never once received a text that laconic from her. Mm. And my brain immediately went into this kind of fear of loss thing where it's like, oh, this isn't a good sign. This doesn't bode well. Do but I was able to put it aside. I was able to say, okay, you know what? There's going to be uncertainty here and yeah, just, just sit with it. And this is, I feel vulnerable talking about prayer, but this is a a moment where I brought in prayer. In this case, I prayed by writing, which is how I do it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I wrote down these fears I was having about her fear that maybe she wasn't going to wind up coming fear that I had perhaps pushed her away in some way. And did the fundamental action of prayer for me, which is saying, hey, I could use some help here with this. We've talked about prayer in the past, so I don't want to recapitulate all that, but suffice to say, prayer for me does not necessarily assume the existence of a listening deity, though it doesn't also not assume that, but it, it is at the very least an act of acknowledging 
things that I can't control with my own conscious mind and my own conscious willpower and trying to open myself up to help from other places, whether that other place is a deeper part of my subconscious I can't actually ordinarily access or whether it is an old bearded dude in the clouds. So did some prayer around it and, and it worked. I felt better. I wasn't so concerned. And then late, late Saturday night, so late, late that next night, it's uh, for the record, it's Monday night. Now we had spoken that difficult conversation was, um, I don't, a day or two later. Hey, good job. You didn't, uh, <laughs> you resisted the impulse to obsessively. Oh no, I'm not resisting. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to figure so, out what the timing was, but I guess it days, doesn't really matter. A few matter. days ago, a few days ago, and then. A yeah, few days so, ago minus one day. Yeah, so we had this, or two days is what I'm trying to remember, but I guess it's not that important. At some subsequent <laughs> point after she sent back this uncharacteristically brief text and I was able yeah. to just kind of let it go, I got a text from her saying, hey, could we could we talk? Ooh. There was still a heart in it. There was still a smiley face, but I was like, okay, well, this <laughs> same thing. I was like, this seems concerning. Anxiety rushed in. I can imagine I would have had a lightning bolt of fear in my heart. Like, Sorry, this is easy for me to remember the date because this was yesterday. I got this text. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, what did you feel when you saw that text? Anxiety, but then same thing saying, yeah. you know what? This is, this is a perfect example of something that I'm just not in control. I don't know what she's thinking. I don't know what's going on here and oh, obsessing man. about it. I, this is OC, what I told myself is if I try to trying to figure this out, trying to parse the language of her text, trying to think about what this could possibly mean is a hundred percent OCD. And Beautiful. I'm going to choose not to go there. I'm going to sit with the anxiety and I'm going to pray for, to let it go. Beautiful. And prayer, it mostly worked. Prayer the anxiety one, popped therapy in. zero. <laughs> for those keeping score at home. <laughs> we're gonna we're, we're gonna change the the title of this to um i don't know we'll have to edit that out no joke there but <laughs> no but to me prayer is not at odds with therapy at all and this is something i'd love to I explore agree. more i agree it, it it is and i think it's it's such to our detriment i mean now we're getting into the the really fundamental questions of the duality that we've imposed in this in most of Western society between the the soul and the mind, or I'd yeah. say even the body and the mind, because prayer for me is actually more of a physical practice. I often do it in a meditative posture as part of meditation. Mm -hmm. often, it'll often be accompanied by a, a physical sense of release, not yeah. always. Which so, is a stupid um, duality given the, the root of psyche means soul. I think that's the Greek or Latin rude it's like a, psych a psychiatrist so they, is a doctor of the soul they do teach you something at medical school all right i have to i have to grant your superior <laughs> training <laughs> that was like one of three things i learned yeah <laughs> that don't sleep with your patients yep <laughs> what was the third <laughs> it's like two out of three that's fine it's really all you need to practice medicine um so, so yeah, so I felt this comfort when I got that text, but I was able to let it go. And, and we did talk yesterday and the substance of it was, she, she said, you know, I didn't feel good after our last conversation. It made me feel like 
she brought up a few concerns and I don't remember exactly what they were specifically, but the substance was, um, hmm. Give me a second. Um, so she expressed that she didn't feel good about that conversation. And some of the concerns it raised for her, I should also be clear. She started by saying she still was looking forward to seeing me tomorrow, which is today. She'll be here in about an hour and a half. But that it made her feel, yeah, just kind of icky was the word she used and also raised some concerns where she was worried that maybe this is the way I'm used to having relationships is just having a lot of these really heavy probing conversations. Mm -hmm. And she said she's never had these conversations in relationships before. And I said, me neither, which is true. I've never once had a relationship where we've had these sort of conversations. That's not to say that my past relationships have been marked by sterling, perfect communication. <laughs> but it just, we haven't gotten into these really just breaking down, you know, why did this happen? What was the, what was behind this? It just has never come mm. up before. So we talked through that and the conclusion was either this is something that's specific to these circumstances, these very unusual pandemic circumstances, or maybe it's something about the way we relate but it's like, if it's the right way we relate, I, I reassured her and she was very reassured. That's how she took it. That listen, I want this to be easy and fun. If this isn't easy and fun, then no, I don't, I don't want to do this. She was, what she was expressing was kind of this fear that this was the way things were going to be. This was just sort of the way I related to people and that it was going to be a lot of this really heavy unpacking. And also she was concerned that I was putting maybe too much importance on this because she had asked me in the last conversation what am I afraid of? What's the worst fear I have? And I said, well, I'm afraid of heartbreak. I'm afraid of getting hurt. And what she said yesterday is effectively, she was saying, I want you to be okay with some heartbreak. Like this doesn't like, I don't want us to feel like this has to work out. Mm. If it, if things don't work out, that's not sure. It'll be painful, but that's okay. And I reassured her there too, by saying, yeah, you know, listen, there's there's 8 billion people in the world. You're extremely special to me, but also part of this process for me has been me learning to open my heart in a way I haven't. And I feel like I can do that with other people too. So I don't feel like this has to work out. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling a great deal of insecurity about what I'm recording right now. Just feeling like it's really all over the place and not interesting. And I feel like if you and I were just having a phone conversation and not recording a podcast, I'd be getting a lot more out of this. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, let's just let it roll. And I'm just going to, what do you think that's about? I don't know. I, it must be some sort of performance anxiety that's coming in. Um, or maybe, maybe this format makes me feel obligated to try to explain the circumstances more and not just talk so much and to explain the circumstances more at the expense of being more present in terms of how I'm feeling. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know the, the gist of this conversation though, is it, it was like, she was feeling like this is potentially going to be a very heavy going with this relationship in general. And potentially Adam is putting a lot of like, really feels like this has to work out. Yeah. 
Well, it sounds and, like there's something to that, that she's she's picking up on the way that really big feelings are coming up for, for both of you. Yeah, but as she said this, it well, this is, and it's sort of this Jekyll and Hyde thing, I almost feel like with me, where we talked about this earlier, where to me, one of the things that I found most encouraging about this relationship is I met, is in the past, there'd often been a pattern of, I meet a woman and she falls into one of two categories. Either she's quote unquote, not good enough, not yeah. beautiful enough, not smart enough, doesn't have the right sense of humor, doesn't have enough shared interests, whatever it is, one or more ways in which she's not good enough, in which case, okay, if she's down, we can still have kind of a superficial sexual relationship, but I know it's not going to go anywhere. Sure. Or, oh, wow, she's amazing. I want this to work out. And then invariably, that pressure I put on it, which is premature and ultimately, I think, savvy woman's sense is not really about them because I don't know them that well, <laughs> that that becomes very unattractive in and of itself and drives them mm -hmm. away. Now, there have been, as we talked about, a couple of relationships in recent years where I have been into them and I've been able to, it's moved forward, yeah, but yeah, generally yeah. that's been the pattern. And what you I was excited about, yeah, yeah, but all hell psychedelics <laughs> but <there's> <laughs> and still a bunch of other done. things. <laughs> there's still work to be done. Still more drugs to take. Medicine, medicine, sorry, medicine. <laughs> well, I do, I have jokes about this whole distinction between the, the whole psychedelic thing where, oh, no, it's not a drug, it's medicine. Yeah, I mean, it's medicine, but calling it medicine, I think, also limits it because psychedelics can be medicines, but they can do things that medicines can't. I've never taken penicillin and had a, I've never taken penicillin and had a telepathic conversation with a tree. So that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't want to. It doesn't mean it's not medicine but, if you have a telepathic <laughs> conversation with a well, this Yes, but I feel like the medicine thing, psychedelics have, I think, unparalleled utility for healing, but they also have unparalleled utility for recreation, for joy, for celebration, for connecting with other people, yeah. for connecting yeah. with nature, for dancing, for meditating. So, And you could say, well, yeah, no, totally, all of those totally. things are healing. And I yeah. don't disagree with that, but yeah, I, I get leery when people cling too hard to the medicine thing because I think sure. that can be a slippery slope leading to, oh, you're not using this medicinally. You're not using it the right way. No, 100%. And I would love to go further into that. And I think we want to have some guests on to dive into that with too. Yeah. Because I feel, but, yeah, I'm so, I mean, I'm, a, I'm like a sort of a part of psychedelic research. I'm a psychiatrist. Um, psychedelics in as they have helped me in the past have yeah the the biggest benefit has come out of these very medicinal contexts ceremonial uses and in, in peru etc but i'd be lying if i said that my introduction to psychedelics way back in the past wasn't you know it's not like my peru wasn't the first time i had a psychedelic substance leave it at that it was it was a tab of lsd that first did it so slightly before yeah. the statue of limitations started <laughs> <laughs> seven years and one day ago it was exactly <laughs> <laughs> it was before it was in um it was it was in 1967 <laughs> right before they right right before they were banned it was in the 60s um, yeah, so this whole notion that the only value that one could ever derive from a psychedelic substance is in a 
is in a highly, highly contained ceremonial or medical environment is, I think, you know, it rings false to a lot of people who've had profound experiences with yeah dancing or in nature or what, what have you. And a lot of the old guard pioneers in this space as well, Terrence McKenna has one of his lectures. He has this great quote. I don't remember it verbatim, but the substance of it is, you know, our way, meaning our, the psychedelic way, it may or may not be the, the right way. It may or may not be the most spiritual way. Or it may or may not be the most authentic way. But what's undeniable is it is the most fun way. And that alone should recommend it. And I couldn't agree more with that. I think fun is spiritual. Laughter is spiritual. Dancing, all this stuff. Let me say that again. I think there is profound. Fun can be deep. Dancing can be profound. These are, these are experiences yeah. that have their own inherent value, whether or not they're cobblestones paving the path to healing. Yeah, I think it's not so much about whether or not those experiences can be profound. It's that when you enter one of those experiences with a psychedelic substance on board, stuff can come up that you are not prepared for, that you weren't, that you were hoping wouldn't surface in that environment. Ah, uh, yes. For example, I had a, I had an experience in, in medical school where yeah, on a Friday night, I'd been in the hospital on Friday seen a really traumatic death in the hospital and then friday night went out to a rave and you know just sort of filed the earlier experience of the day away you know around five in the morning i'm dancing and all of a sudden wouldn't you know it just waves of hemorrhagic waves of grief and sorrow and tears start coming out of me in the middle of a dance floor where people are just trying to have a good time and fortunately i had a you know a friend around who could support me and i was able to go find a place to be in a quieter space and get some support around that but it was it was profound and it was healing but it wasn't i can't recommend it it would have been more optimal to be having that catharsis in um, a setting that was designed to support it. Oh, or one could argue that I against that. Maybe that was exactly what I needed in that place. But it yeah, was embarrassing. I would, I, I, well, I would just say for me, I, I've, I've had epic dance floor psychedelic cries, <laughs> quite a few of them, and I don't think it's coincidental. I think for me, something about dancing, absolutely, uh, the communal experience of dancing and the, my own physical experience of dancing, meaning the experience of being, sharing this experience with all these people. And there is something about, I mean, dancing is probably the thing I miss the most so far in quarantine, honestly, in a lot of Amen. ways, more, more than, uh, more than performing is just being on a dance floor with a couple of hundred people, some of whom I know and love most of whom I don't, but we're all sharing and it feels like you're all building this experience together everyone's kind of contributing by their dancing you see someone yeah, else dancing that yeah. inspires you or you see someone else being uninhibited in some way you're all kind of creating this this little bubble this little reality bubble and then the physical experience for myself of moving my body as we've discussed 
so much of my healing and change in recent years has come down to being connected to my body and dance has been a, an integral part of that. So you throw psychedelics into the mix and yeah, I mean the first time I really mourned my grandmother after she died was at Mr. Sunday, these amazing daytime mm -hmm. dance parties in New York that Jordan mm -hmm. knows and loves mm -hmm. as much as I do. And yeah, I went on the dance floor and suddenly my heart just starts seizing and, <laughs> and I walked off. It's a pretty big, this was an indoor one, but I walked off into a corner. They have these outdoor ones that are even more magical and just fucking sobbed, mm -hmm. sobbed like yeah. eight or 10 minutes yeah. of sobbing. So to your point, yeah, I wonder if the dancing might've helped liberate some of that sorrow that you'd been trying to keep down in, yeah. in concert with the psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Things, I mean, yeah. Things much more untimely than that can come out, I've seen. Yes, yes. I've been, right. at, you it, know, I've, 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 as a, as a helper, I've wound up in party spaces being involved with supporting people who are going through really, really serious, um, even dangerous at, at times experiences of ha having a difficult reaction to psychedelics at a, on a dance floor. So it can get a, it can get a whole lot messier than just crying, but For your sure. point is extremely well taken, extremely important that, yeah, I don't think we can, I don't think we can exclusively privilege one context for for using these things as as they come back into the culture i think you can privilege though a range a limited range of contexts. where i would say i'm going to go on a limb and say universally if you want to have a healing psychedelic experience dropping some tabs or five grams in the middle of times square maybe not what's a peaceful, quiet place during the pandemic, but under ordinary times is I'm not saying you not, don't do it. You could have, you could have a great trip, but you're probably not going to have an introspective healing trip in that, in that sort of context. Yeah, there are for, best practices is what I would say, but I think maybe there, there are some people who um, endorse this dogma of a much more limited range of acceptable circumstances than I would. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, well put. Well put. There are certainly best practices. It can certainly go really, really badly. And it's certainly much more likely to go well in the types of highly curated environments that are where these substances are now being studied. But yeah, it's not to downplay the the valuable experiences people have had with these things in all sorts of environments. All right, so All right. let's try to get back, yeah, to the... Yeah. I mean, yeah, I want to get back to Claire a little bit in the time we have left and before she gets here. Yeah. It seems to me that, you know, tell me if I'm overstepping when I try to summarize summarize the relationship thusly well i don't know that i can summarize the whole thing but she is she's super important to you and you're getting past the honeymoon period and some real insecurities are coming up some potential 
fears in this recent conversation about differences in communication style or appetites for heavy communication although you're also you're also i hear you expressing in this recent conversation that you don't want to be having these heavy exchanges all the time yeah i don't i i i I don't think you're wrong clearly your medical school taught you nothing beyond those three principles (laughs) no i i can see how one would i could see how one would let me go with nonviolent communication uh i'm your therapist you're allowed to (laughs) rage at me <laughs> no i i i think that i think that is sort of the conclusion you're making is maybe kind of where she was going to a little bit but i actually don't think it's that at all i don't think i don't think it has anything to do with the honeymoon period i i almost i mentioned this jekyll and hyde thing where i feel like on one hand i'm quite secure part of that comes yeah. from the fact that especially in recent months there have been a lot of women who i've been very interested in who have yeah been really interested in me like i mean we're two two models who have been on the cover of vogue in the month of february alone with those lips i I know it's probably you know it's probably some sort of make a wish project that i'm unaware of (laughs) (laughs) and not that models being on the cover of vogue is the is the uh zenith of female attractiveness but it's but there is something to that in terms of feeling getting confidence from that yeah which yeah. can sound a little pathetic like i need that sort of affirmation i has, don't need it but it helps yeah we talked about this on the first or second right. episode and, and but that just has absolutely nothing to do with the vulnerability of opening your heart to somebody. well no right so i guess the point i'm making is on one hand i feel like very confident in Clara's desire for me and interest in me and my general desirability. Um, and as we were talking about, we, I mean, this is one of the many threads I started and lost this episode, but this idea that one of the things that encouraged me, I was saying this a long time ago in this episode, one of the things that encouraged me is in the past there'd be this tendency to be like, this person is not good enough or this person is good enough. Uh, and with Clara, I was able to do neither. I was able just to be like, oh, I'm really enjoying connecting with this person. And I'm curious. That was the word that felt the yeah. most true to me. Is just curiosity. I'm curious to see where this goes. If it if it peters out, I'm fine with that. If it continues to deepen, I'm fine with that too. And that I feel like is really truly how I felt and still feel. But the what is it? The Mr. Hyde part. I think that's the evil part in Jekyll and Hyde that keeps that's now rearing its head is this insecurity this pattern of insecurity that I think really doesn't have anything to do with her. I think it's my own Mm -hmm. pattern that just gets triggered. So I'm not the deeper or the bigger part of me is not worried about losing her because I feel like, well, you know what? If it, a, I've certainly had my own doubts, albeit OCD doubts, but I don't know her that well. It's way too soon to say whether I can really have a long-term significant connection with this person. The signs prior to this last visit were promising, but I can't know. So if it doesn't work out, well, it just didn't work out. And there's a lot of other women out there. And the important thing from my own perspective and development is I can open my heart to other women now the same way I did with her. But that's... that's that's the bulk of how I feel. And that's how I feel right now on this sunny day when she's going to show up in a few hours. But what I saw happen her last visit for the first time with her was this insecurity 
where, oh my God, I'm going to lose her. Oh my God, I'm going to drive her off. And yeah, and that doesn't feel real to me in terms of that doesn't feel grounded in the relationship. I don't think the honeymoon period has ended with her. I don't, I think there's still a lot of, because we don't know each other. There's still a lot of joy and discovery or maybe not. Maybe, maybe if we spend more time together, it'll become clear that, okay, this was just a flash in the pan. And I'm genuinely fine with that in this moment. But this deep fear it's this fear of loss, man. I saw it. I was going hiking uh, a week ago um, in a responsible way. I've, I was hiking and no, no one was around. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was watching this epic sunset from the headlands above Stinson Beach. And I had this thought. It wasn't quite articulated. I mean, it wasn't quite word, but it was a feeling that then I paused and observed and I realized what it was was this feeling was, if I could put words to this feeling, for, for, the feeling was first awe, and it's just so magnificent. We haven't talked a lot about nature, but I seem to be extremely, extremely sensitive to nature. It, it gives me a sense of ecstasy, really, that is mm-hmm. extraordinarily powerful. And I was enjoying that, that, those feelings. But then I had this thought slash feeling come in, not quite verbal, but if I had to put words to it, the words would be, well, don't enjoy this too much because you could lose it. Mm. Specifically meaning you don't know how long you're going to be staying out in the Bay Area. You're staying at your cousin's place now. You don't know when he's coming back. So don't fully love this because the more you love it now, you have to protect yourself against the possibility of loss. And the way to do that is don't love it fully. Yeah, I relate to that so much. And I think that's part of what's asserting itself with Clara. And it really doesn't have to do with her. She is great. I really appreciate her. I'm grateful to get to know her. But I, you know, I've, I'm old enough and I've had enough women in my life and I'm meeting enough women now or was pre-quarantine that I don't feel like she's the love of my life. I feel like I can have many loves in my life and it's an open relationship and I want to have many loves in my life. But, but when I sensed her pulling away it was just it was almost a panic reaction of oh my god i'm losing her and this this deep insecurity and if i'm afraid of anything when she walks in the door and now an hour from now i mean i'm not afraid it's gonna happen immediately but i'm afraid that that insecurity can start to rear its head again and i don't want to feel that and of course it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if someone feels you being that desperate or needy yeah totally what I hear you saying is that on the one hand, you know that this is a new relationship. It's one of many potential relationships. Maybe you'll look back and it'll be a flash in the pan. If it doesn't work out, that's fine. You have a, a very mature perspective on it. And and, and then, not just perspective. It feels that way to me. When, in, totally. In moments when I feel like totally. my, Yeah. But then there's other moments where it feels really heavy, really important, like you're probably having thoughts that she could be the one, where if I fuck this up, something's totally wrong with me, I'm never going to find love, I pushed her away, all these, uh, just all, all, maybe those specific thoughts aren't the right ones, but all these really big, heavy thoughts. And I think the important thing, I think, just to, go ahead, go ahead. I I, I'm not having those thoughts, really. The I fucked it up is the thought. It's it's much more, and I think the reason I wanted to interrupt to mention this, because I think there's something going on here that I'm just not seeing, 
it's not those thoughts. The thought is really, it's more just this fear, this yeah. fear of losing her. Yeah. And and if there is a thought, the thought is a very simple thought. It's, I fuck this up, or I'm going to fuck this yeah. up. I'm going to yeah. push Thank her away. I appreciate that. Yeah. Cause it, and ultimately, I think the way you just responded is super important because the fear is, a lot of it is, lives in the world before thought, before yes. language. It's like I'm it's like it's it's like I'm losing it, something I, yeah, I, I need yeah. like I'm almost like oh no I can't lose this yeah. thing but I can lose yeah. this thing there's 8 billion yeah. people so it probably yeah. connects to early childhood but, stuff Yeah exactly that's what I was going to say <laughs> guess who else feels really big feelings that can't be put into thoughts and language babies babies <laughs> cuz they don't have thoughts and language they just have feelings big scary feelings like something I need is being taken away from me by another person and I'm going to die because that's what it feels like for a baby to be left alone by its primary caregiver. We have to have so, a baby as a guest on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know any articulate ones? I know. Ooh, this could be tough. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you have a child, ideally one that's a little bit traumatized and, and, and is very good at explaining themselves, respond in the comments. We would like to have them on. No, but so the point I want to make is that you have both of these things inside of you. You are not one entity. You are you are the mature 45 year old Adam who has this all in perspective and knows, yeah, whatever, no big deal. And you are also not to the same degree, but you have this terrified little child inside of you and it is, we can embody it. We can anthropomorphize it and say, it's a little character who lives in your mind and you could give it a name and, um, imagine it, envision this child. Or we could take more of a biological perspective and say this is an old, an old circuit in your brain that gets, uh, you know, that gets pulled online sometimes in a moment of stress or a moment of feeling threatened. Either way, my point is that you are both of these things. You are not, you are not just the baby, the scared baby, and you are not just mature Adam and the further we go down this road the the kind of further out and psychedelic we'll get because then we'll start to think about well what are you really what is identity what is your ego are you something beyond your ego but for now just the the point I want to try to convey is that both of these things can be true simultaneously and the surest path forward is to recognize the presence of this inner child who has the potential for feeling these big scary feelings and to take him in your arms and nurture him and how how does one do that I, the, the taking in arms and nurturing specifically i get the yeah, recognizing yeah lots of different ways into that i think one that might work for you is you feel you start to feel these feelings come up you go meditate maybe you 
bring an image of yourself as a baby or a toddler or an adolescent or whatever into your mind and you actually you know obviously one of the one of the most valuable parts of psychedelic experiences can be the visionary experience the way that we have mental and psychological experiences in our mind that are represented in image thoughts represented in in image in a psychedelic experience and so you're saying i should get high right now i'm actually i'm really not (laughs) for legal reasons also let's be clear (laughs) (laughs) i need one of those tape recordings like any views expressed on this podcast or <laughs> the personal opinions of Dr. Jordan Iper do not represent recommendations to anyone. I am not your doctor. <laughs> does not constitute medical advice. This does not constitute medical advice. No, what I'm actually recommending is you do uh, some visualization meditation practice, meditation slash prayer practice around this. Or maybe, you know, maybe you actually sit there and you touch your heart and you say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. this little guy maybe you get a stuffed animal and you sort of use that to represent this inner child and you take it in your arms say oh little dude oh hey oh you're really struggling right now mm-hmm. there's um a zen teacher once taught me this concept of grandmother mind which is i i think it's a concept not his own concept i think it's a concept in zen buddhism and the concept was talk to yourself the way a grandmother talks to a grandchild, not the way a mother talks to a child, because as we have danced around and we'll get further into that relationship is clouded with all sorts of complicated shit. But grandparents are typically just uniformly Hmm. accepting, loving, nurturing toward their grandkids. And I think that bringing some grandmother mind into the equation when you start to feel these big scary feelings, just taking this little this little guy inside, you'd say, "Oh, hey, dude, how you doing? Let me. What do you need right now? Let me take care of you." A, it nurtures that part of you that's feeling so frightened, and that makes those feelings that soothes those feelings, and it also reminds you that you are not that little child that that little child is not driving the car he is in the car and he's never gonna get out of it but he's not the driver you grown up grown up guy are the driver and so you just kind of like give him an xbox and tell him to hang out in the back and have some popsicles and chill out yeah i want to explore this more yeah we will I, I can play around with it on my own though too. It does feel like, yeah, this thing just comes over me that I haven't experienced yeah. and I've experienced very rarely, even in the context of most relationships because most recent ones it's been like, well, I know this isn't really going to go anywhere anyway, so I don't have any yeah. any fear of loss. Because right, as we've talked about before, that was protection. That was yeah. protecting. That was protecting yourself from truly opening to someone because it's not until you really start to open to someone that you make yourself vulnerable to these intense feelings. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're kind of, you're in the game now. 
So am I adding this to the, the ongoing list of homework assignments? <laughs> <That's gonna get laughs> the uh, the uh, holotropic breath work, reading nonviolent communication, and uh, nurturing my inner child. Yeah, yeah. Move nurturing my inner child to the front of the list. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I will. I'll try this in my meditations or use it an, on an as-needed basis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's not you, but he's a part of you, and you have to take care of him. Because if you don't, it's not like ignoring him is going to make him go away. He's just going to make more noise. Yeah. But I think also trying to appease him with external reassurance, like it felt like I did in that conversation with Clara, is is kind of putting his issues on someone else in a way that's not helpful. Bingo. Or maybe even fair. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. I mean, yeah, that that's what we'll, we'll continue to get into is like, what is your responsibility to do for yourself and what is it reasonable to request someone else help you with because it's not reasonable or fair to yeah just like throw this wounded inner child in her face and be like fix all of this make <laughs> him feel good that's not going to get you very far but it's also totally implausible and yeah, it's 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 totally deluded to think that you can be an island and meet all of your emotional needs on your own, which I think probably in in this moment in the world people are people are discovering that so much more vividly that oh, we are inextricably interdependent for our emotional needs. And sometimes we absolutely need to ask someone else to help us out in the soothing of our wounded little children thank you for that well i should probably wrap because she is arriving shortly and i need to clean this place up otherwise (laughs) she's going to reject me and uh and never come back if i'm not perfect so right that was the take-home message for today just do everything perfectly and someone who you're not even sure if you want won't leave you yeah but because i am not i mean i'm all i'm sure of is i i liked I was very yeah. much enjoying the connection we had pre-pandemic, yeah. and I'd like to see if we can recapture some of that yeah. joy and see where it, it leads. Totally. I want, yeah. And let these, yeah, let these big intense feelings coming up be a signpost that like, whoa, something intense is coming up here. AFOG, another fucking opportunity for growth. <laughs> wow, let's see what this is about. Yeah. Well, whatever happens, I won't leave you. I appreciate that, Jordan. Fast forward to three years from now when, when not therapy is a global juggernaut. We've actually acquired Amazon. <laughs> we're, in, we're in a vicious shareholder dispute. Lawsuits flying back and forth. <laughs> yeah, what's the equivalent of a prenup for a global, global, global therapy podcast juggernauts? <laughs> I don't know. I'll ask my inner lawyer to uh, draw up a list of <laughs> demands and depose you to make sure all of my my inner child's needs are met. Oh man, I will representing my inner child. I'd like you to meet my inner lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he's vicious. I bet he's vicious. <laughs> all right, my dude. 
I uh, I know that some vulnerable stuff came up today. I know that editing this one is going to take if you're listening to this podcast in the year 20 it's the year 2040 uh, <laughs> it's the year 2040 the pandemic has just ended we finally the ended pandemic social isolation. Just ended. <laughs> yeah uh commander trump is in his 17th term exalted leader <laughs> exalted leader trump and adam with finally. his husband with his husband putin <laughs> <laughs> Adam finally got to a point where he felt comfortable with the final edit on this episode. <laughs> nah, good work, man. I really appreciate it. Um, All right, buddy. Me too. I really appreciate you. And we will talk very soon. Sure will. Have a good one. You too, bud. Bye.